Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's the week of November 18th, 2019. After a couple of weeks off, there is plenty to talk about when it comes to the Chicago White Sox and Major League Baseball. With the general manager meetings taking place last week, helping us to get caught up will be James Fegan of The Athletic as he gives us his thoughts about the White Sox early offseason goals. Later in the show, I'll be joined by Jim Margulis as we'll chat about Jose Abreu coming back thanks to the qualifying offer, what to make of the Houston Astros cheating scandal, and share our top five free agent targets for the White Sox as the winter meetings are just three weeks away. At the end, we'll answer your questions in P.O. Sox. We start this episode with our guest. He is the Chicago White Sox beat reporter for The Athletic and brave enough to have Yoan Mikata on his American League MVP ballot. <laughs> it's James Fegan. And hello, James. Thanks for coming back on the show. Hey, how's it going? It is going. So let's talk about that MVP ballot for a moment. I think I speak for many White Sox fans that we are very happy that you included Makata on your ballot because he did finish in the top 10 in war. Uh, You could even look up at fan graphs. He was ahead of DJ LeMahieu for American League position players, and LeMahieu got a lot of votes. Uh, How do you feel about the public reaction to your ballots uh, specifically? Um, I hated it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I did not enjoy the experience, but uh, I, I was definitely surprised that uh, I was the only person to vote for Mankata. I did not do as much um, pre-vote announcement research as Andrew Baggerly, who was able to suss out that he was the only first place vote for Soroka and, you know, write about it ahead of time. Uh, you know, I, there was some calculation of that. Like, 
I, I spent a lot more time thinking about my first place vote, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the whole process is definitely mostly statistical because as much as we can tout as being actually at the games and watching, you know, I still saw DJ Mayhew, you know, play in person, you know, actually three times. And, uh, I mean, was that a four-game series? Either way, you know, a minuscule amount. And saw him on TV, you know, a dozen more. At the end of the day, I'm I'm looking at their statistical cases a lot, and I'm looking at war a lot on the different metrics. And uh, I got to a point where by the final, like, the 10th place vote, and I, I really can't allow myself to this level of thinking into really that point of the 10th place vote because I, I don't think, like, I can... I think Mookie Betts is probably clearly a tier above uh, Mankata, for example. But I got to the point for at the tenth place slot where uh-huh. I got Mankata, um, Lemayhew, and Devers, and I really kind of feel that they're pretty much on similar tier. You know, you mentioned War being where Mankata's ahead of uh, Lemayhew, and there are other wars uh, that he was behind, like Baseball Reference, for example. And I could also weigh the fact that, you know, there's some probably some pitchers I could have slid in uh, over him as well. Um, though for pitchers, you know, while I was someone who put Cole and Verlander um, um, in my, my pitcher vote, because of the award, I, I, I tend to want them to be a clear tier above who I'm voting from the position player perspective. Um, before, I'm not going to probably slide in a pitcher who's I feel like is basically on plane with a um, – a position player uh, in the MVP award. So I, I have those three guys, mm-hmm. and I have uh, Devers and LeMahieu. That's where I can probably start thinking about market a little bit, and not so much like supporting my hometown guy, but Devers and LeMahieu are going to be they're in New York and Boston. They're going to have a wide degree of exposure. I can probably count on the fact that they are going to be more than adequately represented in the voting base. And that Mankata, there's going to be some degree of his season, <laughs> probably not many people who paid attention to it in the voting block beyond me, that he's probably going to be underrepresented towards his comp- contributions. So that probably is what gave me the slight nudge to give him the tiebreaker, um, just kind of representing him a little bit in the, in the sense that, you know, the same kind of nudge that I would hope, I would assume this is my first time voting for MVP that I would give for some guy who's playing for the Royals or who's playing. If I was say I was voting for NL MVP, like you'd assume a Padres guy would be underrepresented in this fashion, and you'd try to want to give him a nudge. I certainly didn't think that I'd be like just kind of apart from the entire MLB community thinking Mankata was uh, in the tenth tier, and I kind of uh, assume I don't I I don't think anybody. I kind of look sideways at anyone who argued that Moncada was not a top 15 player in the AL, and I think probably within the 10 to 15 range is where he's debatable. And I, I think this is a point that Jim uh, made, is that the, the end result was <laughs> Moncada finishing 22nd in MVP voting. I think Moncada is unquestionably a top 22 player in the AL. Like, there's absolutely no doubt about that. I think DJ Mayu finishing fourth um, strikes me as a little... Uh, well, since the tone of criticism for this has already gone to a, a, a fever pitch level, strikes me as a little ridiculous. Strikes me as unrepresentative of, uh, of how good he was. It, it seems like it's a lot of guy who almost won the batting title for um, a major market type of sliding him up to a, a degree. So, if anything, counteracting mm-hmm. that a little bit kind of steals my resolve a little bit that uh, 
putting some more attention to this player who I felt was on the same, same tier as him was probably a good use of my vote. I, I, I think there's very strict limitations to how strategic you can get. As I said, I don't think it'd be right because I think, oh, Yamankata's not going to get any votes. I'm going to put him above Mookie Betts because I think that's flat out wrong. I feel like Mookie Betts was a, oh, a clear head above Mankata, and I felt the same way about George Springer, even though he right. he dealt with a uh, you know injury issues as did Mankata. Um, so yeah, I, I it was kind of uh, now that I have three guys who I'm really torn about, I'm going to go with the guy who I think is going to get voted for less because it will create this end of uh, end of season thing where. His uh, MVP finish is probably more representative of where he was among the rest of the league. I just can't believe a 10th place vote has gotten so much drama on MLB Twitter. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I thought there were a lot of uh, worse votes out there. Oh, It's just that this year it was Trout versus Bregman. I'm very happy for Marcus Simeon to be the third guy on the ballot, and congratulations to him. But this year it was about Trout or Bregman, and that's all we're really going to remember and it'll be fun to look back at Yohan Mikata's uh, career and go to Baseball Reference and see MVP-22 uh, next to the 2019 season. Uh, but while there are people that are upset about you voting for Yohan Mikata, I am shocked that Jose Abreu got more points uh, than Yohan Mikata. But, hey, it's, it's cool to see two White Sox players, you know, finish in the running for MVP. I mean, it's uh... – it's the RBI leader, so it's just kind of representing the fact that the RBI uh, RBIs and batting average definitely is not dead. Uh, <laughs> it would seem among the MVP voting base, and nor among the uh, hate mail I received as far as. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry, man. Uh, leaving Lemayhu out, out, which very much challenged me. Like, if I was going to not vote for Lemayhu, why didn't I vote for Tim Anderson? Hmm. Which. I didn't follow the logic. Yeah, I don't, I don't follow the logic on that one. The LeMahieu thing, I think, is just narrative, right? Because he supposedly carry a very injured Yankees offense um, for a chunk of the season. So that's why, because of the narrative, he got so many MVP votes. Uh, as someone who's seen some offenses that have dealt with shortcomings, LeMahieu didn't seem like he was carrying that heavy of a load. When that... I, I, I understand. I'm with you. I'm just saying that's the narrative out of New York. Those guys rolled into town, and they, they had help. It was, it was an all-hands-on-deck effort. It wasn't, you know, trying to drag, uh, you know, the the, the Cordell uh, Engel J outfield in, into a into a four-run night the way maybe Yohan was on some nights. True, very true. So that's the MVP ballot. Uh, let's talk about the GM meetings, and uh, there are a few items I'd like to ask you about, starting with, I think, what was the biggest news out of the meetings, and that was Jose Abreu coming back to the Chicago White Sox by accepting the qualifying offer. There's been a rumor that a possible three-year deal from both sides could still be working on, uh, but at the end, are you surprised, James, that after all this conversation with Jose Abreu going public about his wanting to continue his career with the White Sox and the White Sox interest in keeping Abreu around, that in mid-November it took Abreu to accept the qualifying offer to come back to the White Sox for the 2020 season. 
It was like minutes before the deadline, too. Oh, was it? I didn't even pay attention to that part. Yeah, I was sitting, waiting to uh, go to the airport, just waiting for the, the deadline to hit. And Abreu's, the report of that came out just like right at the end. Because like Oda Rizzi was like a couple hours before the deadline. Right. Um, if you asked me in September, for sure, it, it seemed like, you know, it seemed like any moment we could get hit with an announcement like uh, uh, that Abreu had agreed to a new deal. We kind of thought that the season-ending press conference where they kind of set up a dais like in the press box and they like had all these chairs and like a like a table that Han was going to sit at. We kind of thought Abreu was going to hop out <laughs> like in full uniform because it was like an hour before a game started and then be part of it and announce like, yeah, I got a three-year deal. So that it reached this point, yes. Um, if you asked me like a week ago, um, yeah, at this point, the conversation has seemingly shifted to where it did seem like they're heading towards a, a QO resolution. The fact that even that they even levy the QO is just kind of seemingly saying, all right, this isn't reaching a resolution quickly. Let's put this down. And that that prevents the worst case scenario of him walking out of here to like some godfather offer from the Marlins or something like that. And we kind of botched the solution that botched the situation that for one, nobody wants to see happen. No one wants to see him walk out the door. And two would, would uh, create a huge hole at first base that, you know, mm-hmm. look at the free agent market for first <laughs> baseman isn't necessarily easily filled. You know, I mean, obviously you could get creative and, and put Grandal or Mike Moustakis and have some guys who maybe aren't traditional first baseman and kind of get decent contributions for them. But, you know, it would add another another task on their on their list of options or list of uh, to dos. So yeah, uh, it's definitely been trending this way. I like I would have said September. I, I still expect them to make some sort of multi year commitment, but um, they could definitely just write it out like this because it seems like they haven't been that super close uh, to a resolution for a, a while now. Is, do you think it's still on the table though? Do you believe the rumors that there is? mutual interest in trying to find a way to keep Abreu with the White Sox beyond 2020? Yeah, I mean, I know I know there is. I just think that at this point, they haven't... It doesn't seem like there's been a lot of momentum towards that resolution that I feel like is going to pick up now that the QO has been agreed to. I think it's probably a sort of thing like where they'll, they'll be open to conversation going forward uh, throughout the entire process and there seemed to be a little bit of surprise on the, on the part of like White Sox personnel that it kind of reached this point that he was kind of being it, it was kind of being negotiated this hard. So I don't necessarily think that a switch is going to get flipped by this QO entirely. It didn't seem like there was like necessarily a ton of uh, positive momentum. So I wouldn't be surprised if in spring or you know a month from now that that happens. But I didn't think it was like imminent, about to be wrapped up in 24 hours. I don't have a tremendous feel or inside connection for that, but based off just kind of light conversation, the GM meetings, it didn't seem like this is just a placeholder before the deal gets finalized. And, you know, we just need to get signed or something like that. Got it. So first base is taken care of. Brady will be there for the 2020 season. We'll see what happens in the future. I know there's a lot of White Sox fans uh, that like the idea of a short-term deal with Abreu because there is Andrew Vaughn, uh, but Vaughn has yet to reach Birmingham, and we don't know how he'll adjust to that level. Uh, so if you have plans for Andrew Vaughn in 2021, those should still be made in pencil instead of pen. Uh, however, there's still a lot of work to be done for the White Sox front office this offseason, and you wrote about what would make this a successful offseason for the White Sox. I have to admit 
that when I hear the phrase, James, short-term deals, I do get triggered. Because of the past decade's lack of success, signing players to short-term deals, Jim wrote about it on SoxMachine.com, it is not pretty. So when Rick Hahn says, quote, we're getting closer to the point where it makes more sense to have one-year or two-year fixes in place, ideally we want to find a way to add to our core with guys that will be here long-term. Easier said than done, so some improvements may come on short-term deals, end quote. Now, James, I get it. Some players this offseason for the White Sox will be signed to one- or two-year deals this offseason. But I have a problem with the phrase, makes more sense to have one-year or two-year fixes in place, because I find that the quality of talent that you're signing those types of players is different than the long-term guys. Uh, like Yasmati Grandel is not signing a one-year or two-year deal uh, to join the White Sox. Um, you know, better players sign multi-year deals all the time. So talk me off the ledge here, James. Is the White Sox primary focus still looking to sign marquee talent this offseason that will be here beyond, let's say, even 2021? So Han has basically staked out the to-do list of four guys that they need to add basically two bats and two starting pitchers. I pressed a little bit more about relief guys. And, you know, even though I, I've heard the Bettington's rumors uh, that have been out there and, you know, it wouldn't surprise me. He did seem to like Corelli try to stake out that he was fine with where they were at relief wise that he liked last year's bullpen. And he's hoping that, you know, the young group of uh, Hamilton, Birdie, Tyler Johnson, Cody, he somebody emerges and kind of helps that group. So four guys, um, two bats, two starters. I think previously before this point, their free agent signings for the white Sox could probably that they would target would break into two groups. It would be the, you know, absolutely super long-term fits in their window, Manny Machado type. And it would be the one-year John Jay veteran, you know, fill in, not too expensive, maybe flip him. If not, who cares? I We were kind of trying to ask if there was kind of more room in that middle tier uh, as far as just kind of not let's fill all four holes with one to two-year guys. But if you say sign Grandal or um, say Ozuna for some reason uh, – and those two guys are on three, four, five-year deals. Do you maybe fill, or you know, you sign Zach Wheeler or something like that? Do you maybe fill the second slot or the second bat need with a one to two-year guy? Like I, I feel like not everyone in that group is going to be a four or five-year free agent or a uh, someone they land and trade um, with three to four years of control left. And, is there some now that they necessarily 2020 could be a, a season where maybe you can see a winning record, maybe you can see a wild card spot? Would you fill um, fill a slot with someone in more of the middle class? Like the thought that comes to mind is Eric Thames. Like that's a left-handed mm-hmm. bat, and that would fulfill your DH needs. You're not giving that guy a three or four-year deal, but that would serve an immediate kind of purpose of improving the position. So I felt right. it was him kind of leaving open that kind of tier of shopping more than saying well, we don't want to spend too much and we're not going to pursue long-term deals and we're just going to kind of fix everything with patchwork the way 2015 and 2016 became very much known for. So I, because it was both, I felt like he was going to direct, we were kind of directly asking and I think, I know talking to Vinny, he was kind of, we were trying to feel out his uh, willingness to trade for somebody like Jock Peterson or Mookie Betts, people with limited service time, and that's kind of what we're getting at with the limited control element. 
I felt it was kind of a response to that and how much um, he would be willing to do something like that. On day two, he seemed like he really was trying to maybe self-correct to some degree and beat down the idea of we're going to trade for somebody with one-year control. And he felt a lot more worried about the risk of giving up real assets for a guy that then they would struggle to re-sign afterwards, even though the fact that, as something he seemed to point out on the first day, was that they would have plenty of money to do it. Um, it, it just seemed like the idea made him a little bit more queasy. So I, I don't necessarily I, – I think there has would have to be some rule – um, room in a four-player pursuit offseason to sign guys on, on, on Eric Tame level or sign a starter who, who's a starter who would get one year or, or something like that. That there's just not necessarily going to be the volume of guys that they're you know presuming the White Sox are not going to crush everyone in the bidding because it's seemingly not happened before. Mm-hmm. There's, there's going to be some settling for some space filling guys. Um, just to feel out a competitive roster and not have holes in your depth uh, the way they've basically been willing to do the last two years and have been having uh, as a matter of course and you know during the sale uh, contention years. Now you mentioned Azuna. There have been some rumors when people have been writing about the outfielders Nicholas Castellanos and Marcel Azuna that the White Sox are interested in both. And yes, both of those guys could help tremendously in right field in 2020 compared to the production that the White Sox got in 2019. Do you think those rumors, though, carry a lot of weight, James, in the White Sox interest in Cassianos or Azuna? Does any rumor carry weight? I think sometimes there are rumors where there's a lot of smoke. Like, let's say the Texas Rangers and Josh Donaldson. Uh, Yeah, I I find it hard to... I, would, I, do, I wouldn't give it that level, the Donaldson-Rangers connection at this point. It seems more just the casting the wide net at the very beginning of the offseason level of rumors. Uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't seem like an imminent thing. Got it. Uh, something Han said that was interesting was that they would like a right fielder who was a good hitter and a good glove, and that's what they're like targeting at the outset, but they could find themselves in a position where the, the supply diminishes and they have to settle for a guy who's just a good bat. <laughs> which <laughs> I guess that'll be that'll be something to remember at the end of the offseason, like when they have Castellanos or Azuma or Calhoun to be like, ah, so things didn't work out for plan A for you guys, huh? <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> just this last five minutes, the White Sox, it doesn't sound like Han's interested in trading for Mookie Betts, right? That's probably the best right field option for any team in baseball. They needed to improve the position. And then I think you do have this tier of Cassianos and Azuna, good bats, but you really don't feel comfortable about their defensive skills. Cole Calhoun, I think, is a very good right field defender, James. I just worry about if his offensive numbers were because of the juice ball in 2019 because it was a big jump from his previous seasons in offensive numbers. I guess out of those three, what do you think is most likely the direction the White Sox could go to help patch right field? Mm. I don't know. I mean, I still would kind of lead. I guess I'd put Castellanos at a slight edge. I, I The fact of facing him in the division and the youth and feeling like there's probably some upside and athleticism that they can tap into uh, to a degree. You're right. Uh, Cole Calhoun has acquitted himself defensively. Uh, the question is, is, is 34-year-old 
Cole Calhoun, the defender, going to be materially different from 32-year-old Cole Calhoun, the defender? Or are you going to see the kind of somewhat rapid uh, physical decline uh, in performance at the point? I, I think uh, there's been a, some preference to try to get somebody who still has youth and still has uh, can sell them the idea can sell themselves on the idea that he's going to be a kind of a longer uh, member of their competitive window that I would think that Kestadianos's age would probably give him a little bit of a, an edge though. There is the whole Boris client thing there. And also, you know, not having the QO. It's nice though. Yeah. Well, Boris, I, I don't think Castellanos is front and center for Scott Boris right now. Well, he, he gave this presentation about regressive analysis about how projections nest, you know, by nature kind of predict guys to fall back to earth. And he gave an example of how some of his top clients were outperformed projections the last couple of years and basically how these were unfair because they don't allow for the possibility of elite athletes improving themselves progressively over time. And his examples were Cole Rendon and Mike Musakis. And then Nick Castellanos didn't come up until like some follow-up questions several times later. He wasn't at the forefront of his uh, you know presentation. But you know I, he, he did have a prepared line. Though his delivery of it was a little bit clunky, it didn't seem like he had rehearsed it as much as the other stuff. Well, I mean, he's got he's got the biggest fish, and Cassianos is a nice sized fish, but yeah, Scott Boris will be spending a lot more time trying to figure out where Garrett Cole is going to pitch next year. Uh, we did get some fan questions about some topics that you've written about uh, in the last couple of days for the Athletic that uh, I think are. Uh, good to ask. Uh, the first question comes from Rod Float, and uh, Rob is asking, James, what do you guys realistically expect from the White Sox front office this season? Are they setting the fan base for another, hey, we were close when free agency wraps up? And will they even go after superstars with legitimate offers like other teams do? Superstars being like Rendon and Cole? Yeah, let's say, let's go with that. Yeah, Garrett Cole. I mean, that's a pretty popular talking point with White Sox fans said, hey, if they have the money to spend, why not go after Garrett Cole? Uh, it's not wrong. Um, <laughs> I'd be very surprised if they really were uh, finalists or serious competitors. They could be finalists, I suppose, um, for either one. I, I think it'll probably be a, a slightly lower tier. They'll kind of focus on how they had multiple needs to address. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, I think I we brought up the comparison of the Twins um, – and because so many White Sox players and coaching staff during the season kind of pointed at the Twins like, well, yeah, we can be them. We can just add free agents. And Han really liked the idea, not so much about putting all the scrutiny on the front office landing like the perfect free agents, but because he, he kind of pointed to like their core improving. But he seemed to really like the idea of fulfilling several needs rather than focusing on a big splash, which would seem to be language that's you know beyond our already natural expectations that they would not be serious players for Cole and Rendon um, seem to be indicating some measure of strategy. That's more about spreading the wealth over the, the four needs that they've uh, identified rather than, you know, just kind of landing one big franchise player. Um, what was the other parts of the questions? Uh, what's the kind of, yeah, I, I think they've outlined uh, very specific goals. Um, so I think they would definitely be calling themselves to be, you know, called to the mat if they did not fulfill these needs with uh, significant major league guys and not just like weak bounce back guys. Mm -hmm. Like say, you know, last year uh, Alonzo was a bounce back guy. As much as they talked him up, that was a guy coming off a below average uh, WRC plus year. Um, Jay was somebody who had fallen apart in the second half. Um, so I think they they definitely have set the expectation for shopping above that tier, and so I would expect them to to 
at least hold themselves to the standards that they publicly put out there because why would they kind of set themselves up for that uh, <laughs> that backlash so transparently? So I, I think it could definitely be a disappointing year in the sense that people might have lack individual confidence in some how much their needs have met and whether or not they've actually put enough depth uh, in the bullpen to or the fact that they're relying on a Ronaldo Lopez bounce back rather than pushing into the bullpen or something like that. I don't I don't think they're going to build a absolute surefire mm-hmm. contender uh, with a bullet um, in this offseason, but I think they're going to make um, they're going to make the additions in the the areas they've isolated. Missing out of Manny Machado, do you think that still impacts Rick Hahn and Kenny Williams and how the White Sox front office operates even today? It certainly changes how they talk. <laughs> <laughs> they certainly seem to very uh, worried about the expectations uh, that they want to set or how much they want to talk a big game. Or you know, it seemed like in general, you know, I think Hahn prefaced his first uh, GM meeting session by saying he wasn't going to talk about free agency at all. Um, and obviously that wasn't really going to fly, and we had to like ask some questions around it and open up a bit more uh, as we went on. But it, it, it seems like they very much don't want to be in the in the same situation that were from an expectations point, where people are asking them updates about you know basically asking them where's Poochie like every single scene that they walk in, and there there would definitely be some indication that maybe they, Machado was a very unique case of them feeling like he was a great fit and feeling like uh, he had upside left and both feeling like they had the right managerial situation to kind of get the most out of him. And I don't know how much off, I don't know necessarily that's going to come along um, annually now. Uh, maybe they could prove me wrong by, by just swinging it at the Colin Rendon, but yeah, it, it could have the, maybe that's not changing their, their mind or, but maybe, uh, you know, until proven otherwise, I might think their Machado suit was a bit of an anomaly. And then moving over to the international budget uh, to sign international players for the Chicago White Sox as they've uh, made two trades to the Texas Rangers uh, to trade, to include international pool money. And, and you wrote about this, James, but Ed Casey was asking after two years in the penalty box, followed up by a lackluster July 2nd class this year. Are there any indications that the White Sox will be in a better position to spend that money and have a better signing period in this upcoming year? Like specific indicators? No. I mean, what I would say is that Han gave no indication that they were... He tried to beat back the idea that they were actively trying to curb their spending or that they thought... He made it sound like these guys got their whole pool to work with. They swung at their their main targets uh, at the, the July two date. They got what they got. It wasn't you know fulfilling. It wasn't what probably what you know we'd want to see. It wasn't one of their major uh, pools, but um, it it happened. And only at the point of waiting around, looking for some late signings, keeping their eyes out for maybe some low, like, uh, you know, flyers uh, to take a shot on. Did they start to have the conversation of, well, we got all this money sitting around. Should we move some of it to do some other stuff or to eat some major league payroll? And that only at that point did they make the decision. It wasn't kind of siphoning off money just to eat some payroll um, that Marco would have otherwise used or that, you know, Marco had an already other kind of said, like, I'm not doing anything with this. He tr- he tried to make the kind of progression of events very clear of this was absolutely going to waste before we did this. Hmm. And so from that 
we could thus conclude that next year that they will again have their full bonus pool to work with, and ideally they will land more than just a kind of a hopefully future utility player and a bunch of kind of lower tier signings. But traditionally, it seems like while you know Marco has a lot of respect to, from from people I talk to from other teams, it seems like their national. Um, strategy has been based around a lot of like really huge signings at the top rather than the, like this big volume approach uh, that other teams like the, say the Yankees have filled out or, or routinely like stocking their uh, international slot allotments with a, a lot of like middle tier guys and creating a lot of big volume. I don't, given the fact that their international scouting department is supposed to be as big as other teams, I, I definitely thought this first year out of the penalty box is weird and it, it, it's just not providing mm-hmm. Uh, individual encouragement going forward, but um, it, it seems like they're saying that they will be unencumbered next year, I guess would be the only kind of real boost of uh, of confidence. And the fact that, you know, I fundamentally think that Marco Patti is a pretty good scout and has some big hits uh, in his history. So, yeah, that, that's all I got. <laughs> uh, and then our last question came from Greg Waltz. And Greg, you were trying to get information out of Han about the bullpen. But Greg is asking, is there an ideal relief pitcher available on the free agent market that could help the White Sox bullpen next year? Huh. Like, an I- is there ever an ideal? See, the guy that I thought was Drew Pomerantz. Like, if you're not confident in Jace Fry being able to recover and find his 2018 form, that if the White Sox were to sign someone like Drew Pomerantz and pair him with Aaron Bummer, that could be a good combination, or maybe even Daniel Hudson if the Nationals are not bringing him back. Yeah, I mean, if you like Hudson stuff, uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, uh, you know, criticize you for it. But I also feel like Hudson wasn't necessarily a particularly good reliever um, these last couple of years until maybe the second half of this past season. So, in that mind, he seems like just you know your typical free agent reliever, and where you're trying to buy whether or not kind of a recent success is, is something permanent um i i don't know if there's something ideal because you know uh, dylan batances is really cool but they really just went to that experience last year of having a guy who's coming off of something and not having a normal off season just being functionally useless for a season and han talked about that with herrera a bit saying you know if anything they they thought it'd be better but they also thought you know, if Herrera is not 100% in 2019, what does it really matter in the long run? Because it wasn't going to be a contending season anyway. And I don't think you can have quite the same attitude about 2020, and he didn't seem to indicate as much either. Um, I don't know. I, I really liked what Chris Martin was doing before he uh, pulled his oblique. Uh, that would seem to be something, I, I think in general, more than hand in this, because I wouldn't necessarily, you know, preclude Jace Fry from kind of bouncing back and you already kind of have a lefty in a uh, Aaron Bummer. I suppose there's always a uh, room for more depth with that. Um, I, we really just need missing bats right now. They're very much a ground ball contact uh, uh, bullpen. So I, w- I would probably just <laughs> sort the available guys by strikeout rate and start looking from there. And uh, yeah, I, I think a, a, a power righty who miss, misses some bats would probably be very useful for them because right now they have, I mean, even at their height, you know, Column A and, and, and Herrera were never much more than uh, 1K per nine uh, or one one strikeout per inning type of guys. And I, I, I just think somebody who has kind of 
top tier uh, stuff who really can get the strikeout when they need it and isn't so much dependent on uh, their defense would probably be that's the most stylistic uh, addition I can think of. But we, what we learned this year is that if the White Sox surprise, you could always rebuild a bullpen in July because that's what Washington did and it worked out. They didn't have to re- rely on the bullpen too much in the postseason, but you can make definitely two or three trades to help shore up your bullpen. Uh, if you are Rick Hahn and thinking ahead to possibly contending in 2020 for the Chicago White Sox. So to wrap this up, we have a few more weeks before most of the baseball world arrives at San Diego for the winter meetings. Is there anything that White Sox fans should pay attention to between now and then, James? Hmm. I mean, I'd be surprised if there's a lot of activity um, up until then. <laughs> I I don't know. Uh, you could watch Andrew Vaughn in the uh, offseason tournament uh, with, with Team USA, but I think there's like one more game of that. I guess I'd be, you know, something, uh, an idea I was kicking around um, was that the White Sox being a kind of a middle-tier team that's not used to kind of outfitting the field was that in the slow market, is there some sort of uh, – market inefficiency to being really aggressive and trying to get deals done in November or before things stretch out. Han certainly sounded like he didn't want things to stretch out into the new year um, this this winter as much, but he also seemed to really back down from the idea that there was really anything a team could do to speed up the market and feeling like that was as much um, agent-driven uh, that, that things were taking slowly as, as it was like individual teams just holding back and being super conservative. I don't, you know, I don't know if you necessarily buy that, but it would certainly be an indicator that the White Sox are not going to be the team that's going out there and accelerating things and trying to like offer 10 million more on everything just to get it wrapped up and close the deal and kind of, uh, you know, flank other teams that are sticking to their projections and what they should pay and whatnot. So, if anything, I just gave you something to not watch for because it's not going to happen, but that, that was what I was thinking. Well, you had the Braves signing Will Smith. That was a surprise. Yeah, but that that was kind of playing off the QO thing of, hey, we're going to take the QO uh, unless you offer us this three-year uh, I was actually talking to an agent who was just like literally two hours before that announced he's saying like, you know, Will, I was th- thinking that's a really interesting situation with Will Harris. I'm wondering what he'd need. It'd probably be like 340 to to... <laughs> For him to like drop that QO and say I, that that's enough security for me, and then like two hours later, uh, he gets three thirty nine with a one million dollar buyout attached. So now I'm wondering if I should talk to that agent more. You should and see if they got any <laughs> insight on the White Sox and what they will be doing. So it'll be it'll be fun. I, I'll be in San Diego for the winter meetings. I'm hoping I I, I'm hoping that it's active. Yeah, that'd be nice. Uh, you know, I mean, I mean, they made a trade uh, last winter meetings, but I I don't know if it quite fulfilled everyone's. Uh, definition of active to I had a Von Nova. Uh, I suppose we'll be, you know, when Jordi Rosario is getting inducted into the Hall of Fame, we'll be reflecting back on it a bit more. But... <laughs> well, we'll, we'll see what happens leading up to the winter meetings and, of course, uh, all the activity, hopefully activity, at the winter meetings this year. You can read James's excellent work covering the White Sox on The Athletic, theathletic.com, which I recommend to every baseball fan to have a subscription to because with James, a Ken Rosenthal, and Jason Stark, and a host of other writers, they will be breaking news this offseason. So go to theathletic.com to sign up for a subscription today. Plus, James also has a podcast.
podcast on The Athletic called White Sox Business that he co-hosts with Tom Fernelli, which you can listen to on The Athletic as well. And of course, follow James on Twitter at J.R. Fegan and defend his honor if anyone attacks him <laughs> for having Yohan Mikata on his MVP ballot. But anyways, James, as always, thanks for taking the time for coming on the show. Appreciate uh, being on. A lot of you are like me, and you play fantasy football. Some of you are also in my situation, which you are the commissioner of your fantasy league. This year, instead of using other sites to manage our league, I made my own website to track our standings and our past champions, which you can check out at DraftKingsLeague.com. And I created that website on Wix. It was super easy as Wix has hundreds of templates to choose from. So if you don't have the best design chops, no worries. They have a lot of website examples that you can use for blogs, your photography, you're going to be getting married soon. If you want to have a wedding homepage, you can even create your own. Or if you have a small business and you need to update your look online, you can go to Wix and they got a ton of examples that you can pick from to implement for your website. And Wix also has a lot of tools you can use to make the website more productive. For me, it was nice to have Google Sheets integrations that I could use to create standings and allow our players to track their progress. There's other built-in tools like storage and custom domains and custom email addresses, marketing tools, and even e-commerce. With built-in SEO tools, you can get your website found easily on Google, and every site is automatically optimized for any device, both PC and mobile. With a dedicated support team, Wix can help launch a complex website to help your business share your talents to the world, or people like me create a website for your fantasy league. Whatever you are dreaming of, you'll need a website, and Wix can help. Get started now by going to Wix.com, that's W-I-X.com slash podcast to get 10% off when you upgrade your website. Now I'm joined by the managing editor of SoxMachine.com and the co-host of the podcast, it's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. Even though both sides are interested in signing a three-year deal, as James Fegan just said in the previous segment... It took Jose Abreu accepting the qualifying offer to come back to the Chicago White Sox for the 2020 season. When you look at the decision by Jose Abreu and the White Sox extending the qualifying offer, is this a win-win for all parties involved? I think so. First of all, great to be back. Uh, but getting to Abreu, it's uh, yeah, it's tough. Like The qualifying offer, I think, is in most cases... It's seen as a little bit of an insult or a little bit of a, uh, yeah, kind of like the franchise tag in football. It's something a player doesn't want because it only means bad things. I think in this case, it's kind of, you know, for Abreu, I think it mostly means okay things. I mean, it does kill his market and negotiating power, and I think that's why he accepted it. But, I mean, he gets a raise year over year uh, to an, uh, you know, nearly $18 million. That's a an appropriate salary for somebody of Abreu's skill sets and, and production and you know, age. Uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Uh, and I think even if he didn't have the qualifying offer, he might be hard-pressed to get that over the course of a multi-year deal. So it, it does give him a little bit of ground, I think, uh, gained when it comes to him trying to negotiate a multi-year offer because it's already like a raise banked in there. Um, and, and maybe that's what affects the White Sox 
future dollar values and, and maybe the subsequent years make it seem like a little bit of a um, you know, slap in the face that they're trying to get them down to like, say, 12 million or something like that. Uh, that might be where some of the tension lies, but I think for the time being, it's uh, you know a, a decent deal for Abreu, and I think uh, next year, should he have like another year like he had this year, where uh, the power and production there, he's driving in runs, coming through when it counts. Um, you know, maybe teams around the league don't really place a whole lot of importance on RBIs, but he does have the track record, and he won't have a draft pick attached to him, so you know maybe he does have a chance of uh, stirring up more compelling offers. Should it still be? you know, this kind of tenuous situation going into the uh, end of next season. Let's say that Abreu did not have the qualifying offer. It sounded like the Miami Marlins were interested in possibly pursuing Jose Abreu, but backed off after the qualifying offer was placed on Jose Abreu. If the White Sox, hypothetically, weren't interested in having Abreu or having to pay Abreu $17.8 million and let Abreu test free agency waters... Uh, would the White Sox be at significant risk in losing Jose Abreu for the 2020 season? I wouldn't say significant risk. Well, I guess unless you say significant in terms of like realistic or, or that they have to respect it. I think that would be the case. I still think the White Sox would have the inside track by far. And it would probably take a, a kind of like, you know, with Mark Burley's free agency, when he hit free agency and the White Sox were trying to keep him, but they weren't going all out for him and the, the Marlins came in. You blew everybody else away, four for 56 million, I think it was. And and no other team came close, and the White Sox just had to say, take that offer. And then it turned out that Berlin didn't get 56 from the Marlins. He got traded away and wasn't happy about it. But, um, yeah, I can see that being the case. But, yeah, that's that was Jeffrey Loria. Now it's uh, Derek Jeter and company. And so maybe that money isn't there. Or even kind of the, the, the cynical structuring of contracts isn't there to where yeah, they're backloaded and they never intend to pay them through. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, I could see him being a draw. I could see him like maybe the Marlins coming in like three for 45, maybe at most. Um, so that that's why I think when it comes to the qualifying offer and accepting you know, one year for 17.8 million, you know, it's a decent start to a contract and it, and it definitely makes the next two years, uh, even if he does have to take a little bit of a pay cut, um, he should still come out ahead versus trying to structure a multi-year deal anew from here. We'll see on what happens for the rest of this offseason between the White Sox and Jose Abreu. I, I guess, Jim, do you think that the White Sox and Abreu would be willing to, I guess, rip up the qualifying offer and sign a new three-year deal? Uh, in, maybe, you know, in, in terms of, you know, the actual uh, qualifying offer is no longer a salary and something else, I could see that being the case. But I think it would have to be baked in there somewhere, whether... You know, they're paying him more than they want in year two or three um, in exchange for paying him less now. But I think, you know, with the way that, uh, you know, aging curves are and with the way that, uh, you know, when it comes to the White Sox payroll and how they have arbitration raises coming up you know, a couple of years down the line and, and probably adding more through free agency over the next few years, I don't think it'll be like one huge one year spend for them that probably makes sense for him to have a front-loaded salary. So, you know, even if he does sign a multi-year deal, I think it makes sense to keep this salary the same uh, or thereabouts. So that way, you know, they, they decrease the risk of Abreu's production sliding and, you know, his pay slides with it a little bit, you know, to absorb some of the, the aging risk, but also just to, you know, be able to afford better players who actually you know, supplement them for once. Now, in general baseball news, as the Jose Abreu coming back is the biggest news surrounding the Chicago White Sox, 
But throughout the league, we are hearing more every single day, it seems, about the Houston Astros cheating scandal, thanks to some outstanding reporting from The Athletic and ESPN.com. Also on Twitter, folks are doing a terrific job uh, looking through past videos, even bringing up uh, White Sox-Astros games with Danny Farquhar, where you could hear the garbage can drum uh, being banged on every changeup that was called. And, you know, this is significant, and it is quite obvious on what the Houston Astros, uh, I guess we should say, have been doing because that video was 2017, and we just completed the 2019 season. So for the last three years, uh, they've been playing tricks against teams to try to notify their hitters of what is coming. And we know now that a special assistant to the general manager emailed scouts to aid in recording opposing team signs. So now we have a written document on the Astros attempts to, I guess let's call it what it is. Cheat major league baseball continues their investigation at the matter. But Jim, when this investigation is completed, what is going to be a suitable punishment for this offense to the Houston Astros? I I really don't know just because of the time frame and because other teams like the, the Red Sox and the Apple Watch, that was around the same time. And uh, so, I mean, the Astros aren't entirely alone. I think, you know, in, in true Astros style, they've pushed it further than any other team. Uh, and, 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 you know, are, are taking it to a ridiculous degree. And so they will be punished most harshly, but, you know, there's been talk about like vacating the title and, and I don't think that's the case partially you know, because, uh, it was mentioned in effectively wild and, and elsewhere that, uh, the Astros hit worse at home. They're way better hitting on the road. So for all their advantages or all they were doing, it didn't show up in the results. So they can use that as a defense and, and, you know, they ran away at the division, um, you know, it's not really clear how effective it was and, and what it meant. So, I mean, when it comes to, you know, saying their win-loss record wasn't deserved or their postseason success wasn't deserved, I think that's probably too far. So vacating a title or anything like that, you know, that seems meaningless anyway. I don't really care for it in college sports. I don't think it means anything. So that, I think, is uh, not a conversation worth pursuing, but... You know, typically it's just like free agents or not free agents, uh, I should say uh, draft picks uh, being lost, international signing money being lost. Yeah, that's typically the punishment. Um, you know, maybe some people getting suspended, uh, depending on how high it goes and, uh, you know, who they determine, like John Capoella, you know, for the Braves, when uh, the Braves you know, had that international signing scandal, uh, he was banned from baseball. And I don't know if it'll be to that degree, but they've used that before for similar cheating instances where it's something everybody's doing, but, uh, or at least most teams are doing, but the Braves are doing it worse than everybody else. So there is that precedent, I suppose, if you can, uh, you know, take it to a, a slightly different area of, uh, I guess, cheating or, you know, it's still the same spirit, I guess, but different, you know, I guess different mechanics and money's involved and everything like that. But yeah, it seems like they, you know, with this and with the Brandon Taubman uh, fiasco, uh, the Astros really are, you know, I, I guess, you know, to, to a lot of league loathsome, um, you know, they haven't engendered any goodwill. They don't seem to, uh, you know, be interested in it. It just seems to be very cold and, uh, you know, that's been their, basically their brand of baseball, but it might end up biting them. And uh, you see the Astros fans, you know, trying to spread blame around and, 
Uh, I don't know if that's really going to work. And, and the fact that it's gone so high and that he had multiple managers, Alex Cora is kind of implicated in it. Carlos Beltran's implicated in it. Now they manage two different teams. Uh, it really seems to you know, have spread, you know, at least the, the people involved have spread over the league. So I don't even know how you punish that if they're involved. So, uh, I'm really, I really don't know. And the league is doing, I suppose, a good job of, uh, you know, not tipping their hand at all. And I don't even know if they know what to do or if, even if what they want to do, I imagine they'd like to sweep this under the rug, the way that kind of the Apple watch thing was minimized, but you, given how public it is and given what the athletics doing, given what like uh, Lucas Apostolaris for Baseball Prospectus was doing and John Boy on Twitter is doing, you know, you know and just, you know, the everything new they're revealing every day, it doesn't seem like it's going to ease up and the league is going to have to do something. And I guess the more evidence that builds up, you know, the, it, the harder it is going to be to have like a minimal, you know, slap on the wrist response. Do you think the Houston Astros are the only team doing this? Uh... Probably not. Yeah, you know, I, I would say other teams are doing it, but it, it wouldn't surprise me based on the Astros MO that they're the team doing it most aggressively and with the least regard for norms. Uh, and until other team evidence of other teams is produced. Yeah, I think that's one thing that makes the Astros unique is Mike Fires was the one who came out and spoke up against it. And he was a disgruntled former Astro now playing for a division rival. Uh, and yeah, I'm surprised it took them that long to, you know, a couple of years to produce the information. Cause it would have been in the athletics, uh, you know, interest earlier, but, um, yeah, maybe that's just the code of baseball where you don't, you don't say it in, until something comes up, but he was the guy who said it. And, um, yeah, I'm curious whether, you know, he'll inspire other people to, or whether there'll be, you know, now that fires is something on our team, we're going to say something about somebody else's me more just, uh, you know, eye for an eye type justice where they try to uncover some Oakland stuff or, you know, spread it around the league. But right now the Astros are the only ones who have evidence against them. And, you know, as we've seen, you know, I guess across all sports, like the one who gets caught, you know, whether it's, you know, I guess, you know, whether it's like shoving in basketball or something like that, the one who gets, uh, you know, the one who throws the punch, the refs notice is the one who gets, uh, you know, the foul called against them and, it seems like this case, the Astros are doing it the loudest and most noticeably. And until somebody is either identified as somebody doing something remotely comparable, it seems like they're on an island. Yeah. Or you were mentioned examples, the football player hitting the other football player in the head with the helmet, uh, getting the most severe punishment. Because I, I asked a question based on scale, because this is quite a grand scale of how the Houston Astros have been going about pulling this off, trying to make their hitters aware of what is coming because you're going to get what about isms, right? Mm -hmm. From Astros fans and Astro media, maybe the Houston Astros organization themselves in which if major league baseball attempts to come down very hard on Houston, as in they provide the same punishment to the Astros on what they did to the Atlanta Braves to skirt the other 29 teams away from doing something like signing underage kids to contracts. Uh, we're talking 12, 13 year olds, the Dominican Republic already coming to uh, agreements with teams, even though they're not eligible to sign for three more years. If baseball wants to have teams avoid using this type of technology to try to obtain signs or use machine learning to learn other team signs and then try to provide real time information to their players during the game. If they want to avoid the other 29 teams from doing this, 
I wonder if Jeff Lunau would be also fired or removed from his position and maybe also earn a lifetime banishment for Major League Baseball. If if the league, after their investigation, does see that he is the one that pushed this agenda, he was trying to get his, you know, trying to cheat, try to give his team the advantage. And if baseball wants to avoid this with the other 29 teams, that they make the message loud and clear that if you do this, you're no longer going to be part of baseball. Yeah, it's possible. That's why, you know, the, the Capolella incident comes to mind. Uh, that struck a lot of people as overly harsh and, and, you know, the whole ban from baseball, like lifetime, you know, quote unquote lifetime ban. I, don't, I imagine he'll be reinstated at some point, but that's the mechanism they use to remove him from his position. It wouldn't strike me as unreasonable. I think suspension might be more likely just because it is, you know, it's money's not involved. Um, it is, you know, uh, at least <laughs> I should say that that we know of, you know, who knows how how messy this will get. But, you know, based on the evidence produced so far that there is no, um, you know, there isn't you know, millions of dollars involved. It's just the, you know, I would say gamesmanship turn into cheating, but still like, you know, in the interest of winning games, no money's changed. You know, it just seems like it's not quite at that level to where fraud is being committed. So that strikes me as a little bit too severe, but Capolella's punishment was that severe and uh, Mm -hmm. they seem to accept it. And so it wouldn't strike me as like out of the question. I I think it would take a lot more than we've seen to get there, but it hasn't slowed down yet. So it's possible. Yeah. We'll see how the investigation goes for major league baseball. I am sure the commissioner's office would like some type of resolution prior to the winter meetings. uh, Cause I don't think they want this conversation to continue during the winter meetings. Uh, so we may know what they decide to do, but uh, I guess I am preparing Jim for someone that we praised and thought highly of on the way that, you know, Jeff Lunau helped with the Astros to their rebuild and to bring in a World Series winner and win another American League pennant and also having the Astros reach the American League Championship Series. Uh, to try to create this advantage by cheating. But, you know, sign stealing has been going on in baseball for a really, really long time. But I could see Rob Manfred, after this investigation, providing a severe punishment in which Jeff Lunau is no longer the general manager of the Houston Astros. And I'm not exactly sure on what direction Astros ownership goes in finding a new GM because it sounds like they also broke up with Nolan Ryan, and Nolan Ryan's son in the front office. Yeah. So there's a lot of things that are going on in the behind the scenes for the Houston Astros since the World Series has concluded. Yeah, it's kind of funny. The you know as the Astros were rebuilding and you know, losing a lot of games and 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 looking terrible doing it both on the field and off the field. You know, uh, players accused uh, the the front office and Lunau being too cold and impersonal and numbers driven and. Yeah, firing all the scouts or not firing all the scouts, but firing a lot of scouts and reassigning them and, and demoting them and everything like that, you know, diminishing the importance and the human feel of, uh, you know, player recruitment, the Brady Aiken thing happened and just, they were, you know, slammed for it. But then, you know, Aiken hasn't turned into anything with the, you know, when, after the Indians drafted him, Bud Norris is one of the players uh, criticizing Lunau and Norris really hasn't come out looking good. He was part of the Cardinals hazing issues. So, you know, he's, He's taken a hit, so you know these these critics of the Astros, you know, have been I guess diminished. And then when it comes to their success, 
you know, it's all been unfolding in terms of looks like they're doing everything the right way and other teams will be following their mode, their, their, their mold. But uh, when it comes to this, you know, impersonal dealings and winning over everything, you know, it does seem like a, like a Chekhov's gun resurfacing to where, and like now it's manifested itself, but in a completely different way that is more than just, you know, the you know, people getting fired or people being underappreciated or undercompensated. It's turned into something, you know, darker with the Taubman thing. And now just, uh, you know, beyond the realm of, uh, I guess, gamesmanship and into cheating with this uh, sign stealing thing. And yeah, it, it's, uh, I, I guess it did manifest itself, but in a completely darker and, and different realm. And, and I wonder if the league doesn't want to encourage that the rest of the way. And, and you know, it's only going to be, even if teams don't follow the Astros all the way, I mean, the way the front offices are being, you know, built with, you know, Ivy League GMs and uh, business-minded, uh, uh, you know, uh, guys with business and Wall Street backgrounds and, you know, looking at arbitrage over everything else. Yeah, you know, that's, it seems like, uh, you know, <laughs> the Astros aren't, aren't alone in how they approach the game and look at the game. So I could see the league wanting to try to do what they can to just make sure that uh, teams don't follow them all the way down that path. For the Chicago White Sox, what were some of your key takeaways from the GM meetings this past week? Uh, nothing really new. I think you know, Rick Hahn is trying to be very cautious about what he says and, and trying not to, I guess, have the whole Manny Machado thing happen over again in terms of just you know people hanging on every report and 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 them talking up and having these high profile meetings that don't result in anything you know the you know, unfortunately you you know they use that uh uh people don't care about the labor they want to see the baby and uh, like i wrote about just like i know a lot of recent parents and people do care about the labor they care about the health of the mother and how everything went so i'd, I'd like to see him drop that metaphor because i don't think it reflects well on him i even though i get what he's saying but uh, yeah, it, it strikes me as just, you know, talk that he'll have to back up just like last year and last year he didn't do it. So it, it ups the pressure on him. I think he recognizes and respects the pressure, but again, you know, as we've been following for the last few years, uh, the White Sox actually have to see something through, like see a high profile free agency or free agent pursuit or high profile trade through before, you know, he can actually shake it and, and, you know, where it becomes more than words. Well, those are the big news items since we've been away, but as Major League Baseball's offseason continues, we have already seen one major signing and that reliever Will Smith is joining the Atlanta Braves, and maybe that's a sign that activity will pick up. We could see more moves made towards the winter meetings, but after the qualifying offers have been accepted, players opting into their deals, we have a much better idea who is going to be available for the Chicago White Sox to go after this offseason and free agency. So we're going to take a quick break, but coming up next, Jim and I will be sharing our top five free agent targets for the White Sox. Do you ever feel like ticketing websites make getting to the event difficult on purpose? It's as if they're so big they can get away with not caring about the customer experience. So what if their site's annoying and doesn't have the events that you want? The real question is, how easy could it be if those ticketing sites actually cared? Well, with millions of live event tickets and a price match guarantee, SeatGeek proves there's a better way in buying tickets. You can search sports, live music, comedy, and more. SeatGeek has the tickets you're looking for all in one place. In an industry that tends to stagnate, SeatGeek decided to stand out from the crowd. They built the fastest way to find tickets so you can stop searching for the perfect seat and you can start enjoying it. 
and I use SeatGeek all of the time for my ticketing needs, checking out as far as tickets to go see the Chicago Blackhawks as they're playing much better as of late. I know the Chicago Bulls have been hot and cold, but if you want to see some of the best basketball players in the NBA and check them out at the United Center, best place for ticket deals is at SeatGeek. And the best part is is that our listeners get to save $10 off their first SeatGeek purchase. All you have to do is just use our promo code. Download the SeatGeek app today on your smartphone and use promo code SOCKSMACHINE. That's promo code SOCKSMACHINE for $10 off your first purchase on SeatGeek. It's time to share our top five free agent targets for the Chicago White Sox after the GM meetings. Now, a disclaimer. Any sane baseball fan would have Garrett Cole, Anthony Rendon, and Steven Strasburg in some 1-2-3 order. And I wish I could honestly say that the White Sox would be in the running for those players. But I think we know deep in our hearts that may not be the case. So for me, Jim, when I try to come up with a list of my top five targets that I'd like the White Sox to go after in this offseason and free agency... I was trying to list players that I think are most realistic that the White Sox can, well, the White Sox could afford anyone, um, but that the White Sox would target based on previous spending habits. So let's go ahead and share our top five, and let's start with number one on your top five list. Who would be your number one target for the White Sox to go after, after we know who is actually available uh, with the conclusion of the GM meetings? Uh, number one for me, uh, based on a little bit of your criteria, is Yasmani Grandal. Um, just because the White Sox can use help behind the plate. They have to guard against James McCann's regression. They need left-handed bat. They need power. They need patience. They need uh, you know guys who can, or at least one guy behind the plate who can help a pitcher out and steal strikes. And one guy does all of that. So I think uh, when you look at who provides the most help for the various White Sox weaknesses, Grandal seems to cover... As many of them as one player can. I have Yasmani Grandel also number one for a lot of the things that you touch on. So let's just go to number two. And I'll start with number two because I'd like to okay. know what you think of this. And I wasn't very high on him last year. And then he surprised me when he got traded to the Chicago Cubs. But number two on my list is Nicholas Castellanos. And Mike Petriallo. Uh, wrote a column about Castellanos and his defense in particular and what he has been approving in right field and why there are some signs that Castellanos is not as bad of an outfielder that we saw when he joined the Detroit Tigers because obviously when you look at his past numbers, the numbers are terrible. But the White Sox have a desperate need in right field. And there have been some really good questions on Twitter. Who would you prefer, Nicholas Castellanos or Marcelo Zuna? And after what Petriolo wrote and looking at the offensive numbers and considering age, I'm siding with Nicholas Castellanos in this debate. And that's why he's number two on the list for me, because the White Sox have a desperate need to improve in right field. And they could use someone like Nicholas Castellanos. I I agree with uh, you know Castellanos over Azuna. You know, just watching Azuna play the outfield, uh, really inspiring. No faith, and you know Castellanos can hit, and he offers you know the the hitting ability and and the plate coverage, and doesn't add to the uh, you know he helps a little bit with walks, helps a little bit with the strikeouts. Very you know well-rounded hitter. Um, you know, not somebody who's like shifted against uh, too much, and 
seems to address it, but I think my number two free agents, and I'm going to cheat a little bit, but also I just want to put it out there as Garrett Cole. Uh, I know that's cheating just because he is the top free agent available, top pitching prospect, but the White Sox can afford him. That's why I'm putting him out there. Like when you do a wholesale rebuild like the White Sox have, and you create that blank payroll that the White Sox have, it's theoretically to get the free agent who helps the most. You know, clear the decks and sign the guy who can put you over the top. And if you clear all the payroll and then stick to sub $60 million deals, then that kind of defeats the purpose of it. So I want to put Garrett Cole out there as somebody the White Sox should pursue because that's kind of the whole idea of this rebuild uh, uh, clean payroll thing is you should be able to afford a $30 million salary at some point. Okay, so why would you have Grandel ahead of Cole, though? Uh, just to wait for possibility and, and realism. So I didn't want to cheat with put Garrett Cole on top, but I didn't want to put him on the list. So Okay. All right. Fair enough. I adjusted it for the realism <laughs> parts, but I didn't want to go right away into Garrett Cole. But I, it seems like, you know, to let the White Sox slide on not being interested at all um, would be misplaced. Yeah. Joe Sheehan, who has written for numerous publications, uh, has his daily baseball newsletter that I subscribe to. And he listed one through 30 all the Major League Baseball teams that he thought were most interesting. And number one was the Boston Red Sox. And number two is the Chicago Cubs because what are they going to do? Are they being serious that they want to avoid the luxury tax? Are they are both teams being serious about possibly trading Mookie Betts uh, and Chris Bryant? And then his third most interesting team was the White Sox. And in his thought... If the White Sox do not sign one of the three, Garrett Cole, Anthony Rendon, and Steven Strasburg, in his words, the White Sox have failed this offseason. Do you agree with that thinking? Uh, I guess it depends on what they get. Like, if it turns into another Harper-Machado thing where they sign for what people thought they were going to get, or even maybe a little bit less of a commitment than they got, you know, two years in a row of the top free agents signing tolerable deals to teams that, you know, I guess are not world beaters. Like they're not competing with the Yankees of old to where they just, you know, they just, you know, throw these contracts that are completely out of reach for most of their teams. They're competing with the Padres and the Phillies and, and, you know, they're lowering the deals themselves and, and, and not blowing uh, expectations completely to pieces. So, you know, when you look at multiple winters and, um, not, you know, if they, if they come out of multiple winters without any kind of landmark deal for a guy they really like and a guy who addresses a need on their depth chart that's even, you know, mildly optimistic uh, internal projections can't solve, um, then, yeah, I, I don't quite know what the purpose of tearing it down in the studs was. You know, you can do, you can do basically the same thing with uh with less of a dramatic step back so i do agree that it is a failure of the the wholesale re rebuild that they did and uh so uh, yeah looking at that way combining it with the two winters i would say yeah there, there's a failure there you have garrett cole's number two how about number three on your list who is number three in your top five i would say number three if cole you know uh, assuming cole isn't uh you know <laughs> likely Zach Wheeler seems to you know get back into the White Sox range of possible outcomes. I like the talent. I like uh, 
you know, maybe if you get him away from the Mets and their weirdness with pitcher injuries that uh, you can put his, you know, history behind him. Mm. Uh, but the last two years been really good. The strikeouts are there. The walks have dropped. Uh, he's not you know, prone, especially prone to homers. Uh, and, you know, unlike Jake Odorizzi, and, and he's somebody who accepted the qualifying offer and took himself off the market, but with Odorizzi, um, you know, he's somebody who seldom pitches more than six innings. He's you know, He's been uh, guarded against uh, T-Top and facing teams for a third time. You know, he grew up with the Rays, and the Rays uh, understood that uh, that issue very well. Then he went to the Twins, who have a lot of Rays ex-employees, and they understood what they were getting with Odorizzi, and they hit him well. So, I mean, he threw 30 starts, but, you know, maybe threw 150, 160 innings. And the White Sox don't tend to do well with that kind of talent, like where, where they need to be, um, you know, shielded against some people or need to have, uh, you know, these, these uh, limitations hidden. Uh, the White Sox tend to be have, yeah, I guess, such thin talent that they need to make the most of anybody who's credible and that turns into diminishing returns. So I didn't like Odorizzi, but I think Wheeler, as long as he's healthy and, and can take the ball, he's somebody who fits the White Sox MO of starters going six plus innings and, uh, you know, every fifth day. Uh, and if they're not going to use the opener and not get clever, uh, it seems like that's somebody they should pursue. And that's why I like Cole a lot. Yeah, Zach Wheeler, when you look at his advanced metrics, kind of befuddles me. I mean, in 195 innings last year for the Mets and 31 starts, both are really strong numbers. He struck out 195 batters. That's what you want to see. His ERA plus on baseball reference was 102, which suggests that Wheeler was only 2% better than league average. But his war total was 4.1. Like, it's kind of all over the place, and I'm not exactly sure what to make of that. But I agree with you that out of the starting pitchers outside of Garrett Cole and Steven Strasburg, uh, that Wheeler catches my eye. Even though age-wise, a lot of people bring up age. Well, he's younger. He's not that much younger, actually, than like Madison Bumgarner, for example. That's a, a tribute to how long Bumgarner's been pitching in the major leagues and you know, how many injuries Zach Wheeler went through because in 2015, 2016, uh, there was nothing. He made 32 starts in 2014, and then he didn't make another start with the New York Mets until 2017. Uh, so I also have Zach Wheeler number third on my list. So then I guess I'll just drop to number four. And, and I'm, I'm, a, I'm a bit concerned again, just like my Nick Castellanos uh, being on my list on, on what you think, Jim. But I have another starting pitcher on my top five and I'm going with Dallas Keuchel and I'm going with Keuchel because Madison Bumgarner's fly ball rate scares the hell out of me. And I don't know how he would do if he continued to have a 65% fly ball rate at guaranteed rate field, like 45 to 50 home runs allowed, uh, especially if they continue to use the super bouncy ball that they did this past regular season. Uh, could definitely be in range uh, for Bumgarner. But with with Keuchel in 19 starts with the Atlanta Braves, uh, he had a 3.75 ERA. His ERA plus was 121, so he pitched well for the Atlanta Braves. He's not a strikeout artist, but he can be someone to provide veteran presence for the Chicago White Sox starting pitching staff. And he does have some postseason experience of the White Sox ever getting that situation. So if they don't get Zach Wheeler, or if they do sign Zach Wheeler, why not? Go after Dallas Keuchel, uh, but Dallas Keuchel's number four on my list. 
Number four for me, and it's number four because I don't exactly know how he would fit ideally, but I just like the talent so much is Josh Donaldson. Okay. Uh, always been a fan of his, um, you know, just watching him kill the White Sox, uh, especially David Robertson when Robertson pitched for him. Just It was just the quality of at bats and his ability to draw walks and fight. Yeah, the walks and power, the combination, you know, this year, 100 walks and uh, 70 extra base hits, 37 homers, 33 doubles, 100 walks. That's kind of what the White Sox need. <laughs> they need both of those things. Uh, you know, ideally they would get one from a left-handed hitter, but I've always liked the talent. He's got the postseason with four different teams. Like every team, uh, you know, whether it's been Oakland, Toronto, Cleveland, he's barely on it, um, but, you know, it technically qualifies. But the Braves, you know, they they took a next step with him. He seems to make every team better, you know, as long as he's healthy. And if the White Sox have at bats at DH, then they can, you know, spell him. But, uh, yeah, it seems like I, I, you know, you might have a battle there with Yohan Moncada playing third or whether you want to move you know, Moncada around and, and try to make a multi-position guy, kind of like Chris Bryant is uh, with the Cubs, you know, the ability to move to different positions. But I just always like the talent and, you know, seeing him on the market now twice in a row, um, yeah, last year he's kind of banged up and took a prove it deal, but now he's back and fully healthy, played 155 games. Uh, just always like the talent and the White Sox could use somebody like him. They really could. They really, really could. I like that. I like having Josh Donaldson number four in your list. So to wrap it up, who is number five in your top five free agent targets that you like the White Sox to go after? Hyunjin Ryu. You know, he would be great to expand the brand. Basically, that's coming I mean, like the talent, you know, left-handed pitcher too. So you have that, you know, with a uh, with the White Sox rotation that fits in nicely. But yeah, just the uh, amount of different things that, uh, you know, I guess the different perspectives on the game, the different people who are interested when you have a Korean player on the team uh, really just adds a different element to following the White Sox. So, uh, yeah, I appreciate the talent, but I also appreciate the the cultural exchange. So that's kind of the reason I'm going with. You know what? I kind of now want to replace Ryu, uh, my Dallas Keuchel pick with Ryu. I, I wish I could go back and I could replace that, but I feel like an idiot for not having him on my top five list. And, you know, seeing on Twitter him coming back home to South Korea, I mean, could you imagine? I mean, you follow Korean baseball, Jim. You've been over to South Korea. If the White Sox were to sign Ryu, I mean, I have to imagine there would be another you know, global market that would suddenly be watching White Sox games. Yeah, it, it's when, when at least when I was there, and that was uh, like five years ago now, six years ago, um, yeah, maybe even longer while, but <laughs> when it comes to uh, just the way, um, I guess they follow the league, it's they, they follow stars first. So when you walk around and you see, um, and, and you see what people are wearing. Like I remember Shinsu Chu was on the Reds at the time and you see a lot of Reds caps. You never see Reds caps anywhere outside the U S or even around the U S outside of maybe Ohio, but it's not a popular hat. Um, but you saw a lot of red shirts, reds hats. Uh, you see a lot of Dodger stuff, uh, obviously. And with the, um, you know, with the white Sox, they have a global brand just because of the hats, uh, popularity, um, you know, and, and things that aren't baseball, but to actually have somebody from that country wearing the cap would make it, you know, would have it shoot up the list. And, uh, you know, it, the talent justifies it too. It's not just like taking a random uh, stab at a KBO player who doesn't quite, you know, make it. Um, this is somebody who's proven himself and, you know, his needs or his abilities fit the White Sox needs well. So that's why he's on my list. Well, that's a great option. Number five on my list, and I touched on him before, 
But if Nicholas Castellanos is not an option for the Chicago White Sox, uh, I think Marcelo Zuna would be another viable free agent target that I like the White Sox uh, to go after. So the, the rumors that the White Sox are interested in both Castellanos and Azuna, I like hearing that. I believe, Jim, the White Sox need to convert on one of those two players to help out in right field. Because if you don't land Castellanos and Azuna, and James mentioned the previous segment about Cole Calhoun, you know, how how much do you want to trust 34-year-old Cole Calhoun? Maybe Calhoun's only a one-year option for you in right field. Um, but I don't feel strongly about the White Sox outfield prospects that one of those guys is suddenly going to emerge uh, and explode and have a great 2020 season, which I feel comfortable that they could fill the void in right field in 2021 um, because Luis Robert has to fill one of the voids in the outfield at center field uh, that I do think the White Sox need a multi-year solution. And I think that they need to land either Castellanos or Azuna. So that's why Azuna is number five on my list. Do you feel the same way when it comes to right field and try to address that position? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, the trade market there is also possible, uh, but true. Yeah. I think Cole Calhoun is uh, uh, the most White Sox signing just because he's, you know, <laughs> he papers over needs the White Sox to have like a better defender, left-handed hitter, take some walks and such, but he needs to do everything as well as he does it to be adequate. And if he slips in any one of those areas, he'll just be uh, somebody who the White Sox are just, you know, dragging with them. So that's why I'm not really a, a fan. I think I like Castellanos more than Azuna just because Azuna... He had that one great year with Miami. I thought he was going to like take off with the Cardinals. Didn't quite materialize. Uh, defense has taken a step back. Castellanos is, is flawed, but I think the bat's always been there. Or at least, you know, last three years, the bat's always been there. And, yeah, just in, in these, you know, he's played with some bad Tigers teams. He had, you know, survived a midseason trade and even thrived with one. And that didn't throw him off. So I think the talent there is a little bit more stable, uh, whereas Azuna just uh, you know, took a step back with a, with a team I thought he was going to do much better with. So, yeah, it's hard for me to feel great about either player is a, a, an improvement. And if the White Sox signed either, I'd be happy. Uh, but I think one over the other, uh, I think I'd like Castellanos and I uh, wouldn't mind the White Sox you know, seeing if they could swing a trade to have somebody who just fits the needs a little bit better than either one of those players. But that might not be possible. So you have Grandel, Cole, Wheeler, Donaldson, and Ryu in your top five. Mm-hmm. Man, I really like that Ryu option. I wish I thought of that. Uh, I have Grandel, uh, Grandel, Castellanos, Keiko, Wheeler, and Azuna. Is there any honorable mention, any other pl- uh, free agent targets that almost made your list? Uh, not really. I think after that point, you get guys who help, but you know, players who are you know, flawed or just don't quite, yeah, like Jason Castro, like somebody who, you know, if they can't, you know, convert on Grandal, maybe they bring in Castro to provide, you know, some of the same things, but less, you know, you kind of get into lesser players of the same positions. And so when it comes to uh, those five, I think everybody else is just, you know, more or less uh, lesser versions of them. That is true. The other players that I was thinking of that I I don't know I wouldn't have in my top five list but you mentioned very White Sox sightings and you know James even wrote about how the White Sox across the field when they've played against the Minnesota Twins saw what the Twins did in free agency now the White Sox try to copy and what worked for the Twins to help with their internal core and build around it 
I wonder if Edwin Encarnacion is someone that they would go after to play the role of mm. Nelson Cruz, where in- Encarnacion, it doesn't matter what you think of his physical ability and his athleticism. Could he actually play a defensive position? If you stick him at DH, he's going to hit 30 plus home runs for you. And the White Sox definitely need more power in their lineup. So if they're starting to lack a little bit or they fall short and signing some of the top end bats, uh, I do wonder if that is a viable option for the White Sox. I, I know it's not a sexy pick, uh, but he is someone, if you look at his past numbers, as long as you get him in the lineup 140-plus games, uh, he's going to hit 30-plus homers for you, and that's that's a need for the White Sox in 2020. Yeah, that's not bad. Um, yeah, I like, a, like I said, like you know, somebody like Donaldson, I think, would be – the rich man's incarnacion, uh, you know, to serve the same purpose on the White Sox roster. But yeah, if, if if they don't quite, you know, if Donaldson doesn't want to play for the White Sox, you know, wants third base to himself or whatever, uh, even if the White Sox tried for him, you know, then you have to set your sights lower. And he'd be somebody who, you know, it would be setting sights lower, but he also gives the White Sox something they really need, which is home runs. So yeah, I'm not opposed to it, but not as a plan A. More of a okay, we we tried. Uh, solving DH the first time around didn't work. We still can improve it with this guy. Right. Right. And, you know, it'd be kind of fun. Jose Breu, Encarnacion, Aloy Jimenez, and you got Luis Robert and Yohan Mikata in the mix, and maybe they get a Grandel or, you know, you know, even a Castellanos. I mean, that's still possible. And now the White Sox have a much deeper lineup, a lineup that could help contend in the American League Central, at least offensively. Uh, with the Minnesota Twins and the Cleveland Indians. So hopefully the White Sox sign a couple of our top five players that we have on our list. It would be great to hear who you guys have in your top five free agent targets for the White Sox for the remaining of this offseason. Again, we'll be covering all of the moves on SoxMachine.com, and if there is a major enough move, whether a trade or a key free agent signing, maybe we'll bust out the live emergency podcast as it's been a minute since we've done that. Speaking of not doing something recently, let's answer some P.O. Sox questions next on the Sox Machine podcast. When you rely on the internet for everything... You need speed that can handle anything. And now, Xfinity delivers Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. Check out our amazing offers on internet and learn about the latest breakthrough from Xfinity. Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. That's more than enough speed to power all your devices and then some. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. Gig Wi-Fi requires gig speed and compatible x gateway. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Sox. Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show where you, our fans and listeners, get to ask the questions. It's P.O. Sox. We submitted your questions to us via Twitter, tweeting them to us at Sox Machine, posting them on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Sox Machine, and helping support the site and the show by becoming a friend at patreon.com slash Sox Machine. And Jim is here to answer your guys' questions. And Jim, the first question that we have comes from David Justice. And David is asking, what will Michael Kopech's war look like next year? Is there a ceiling? Yeah, I think there is a ceiling just because of coming back from an injury, uh, coming back from Tommy John surgery. The White Sox don't have a rich history of having smooth rehabs from that. Also, 
being his rookie season and wanting to manage workloads, I, you know, I don't think they're going to, even if he looks great in spring training, um, I, I don't think they're going to have him go six months pitching every five days and, and wherever he ends up, he ends up. I think they'll try to, whether it's start him in Charlotte to make sure he can, you know, respond every five days pitching six innings or whether they, you know, give him breaks in the season. I think they'll limit his workload somehow. So I was looking at steamer. That wasn't really much of a help because they project him for one inning and one run. So <laughs> there's no, uh, which, yeah, God, I hope that isn't what he ends up uh, contributing, but you know, given the Tommy John history with the White Sox, I guess it's not completely out of the question, but I guess my feeling for him, or like if he turned in, like say one and a half wins above replacement this season, that would strike me as a decent year, um, just because that means that he's better than what the White Sox have had, but it also allows him to, you know, have some struggles, whether it's because he, you know, he's not fully, uh, his command isn't fully 100% after the injury or just because the league is teaching him some things his first time around uh, in earnest. Um, you, you do allow for him to have some struggles. You know, Now I think if everything clicks and he has minimal um, rust that he has to knock off and only occasion, uh, encounters the occasional stumble, I think his ceiling might be something like four wins above replacement, like a James Paxton-like season where he's not around or not available for as much as he'd want ideally, but... Whenever he's on the mound and throwing six innings, they look pretty good, and the strikeouts are there, and the peripherals are great. So um, that that strikes me as out of reach, but theoretically possible if his offseason uh, and, and rehab is really great and 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 you know reflects his work ethic. Because I don't think you can question that. So I'd put him in that range of one and a half to four wins, but probably closer to yeah one and a half two. Well, in the 2018 season when we had Dan Zaborski on. And he was looking at what Zips was telling him. Zips sees Michael Kopech as boom or bust. Boom as in someone that could be worth four war. Bust someone that posts a zero war season. And there wasn't much of a middle ground. So I think if he's two war next year, you got to take that, right? You got to be really happy for someone coming off Tommy John surgery, missing the entire 2019 season and come back to be a close-to-league-average starting pitcher in their first full year. I think you got to take that, right, Jim? Especially the first full year we saw from Lucas Giolito, for example. Yeah, and it kind of reminds me a little bit of Carlos Rodon, just somebody who, you know, the start-to-start maybe isn't the prettiest thing to watch, but the talent is undeniable, and, and the league really can't punish him as much as, you know, the trouble he might get himself into, and so he just minimizes the the disaster outings and ultimately comes out looking better than maybe his performances felt. So that's why I think that maybe the bust, unless you're, you know, counting on just, you know, him not staying healthy. Uh, it seems like he should have the talent to turn in some decent starts, even if everything's not clicking for him. I agree. I agree. Hopefully uh, we do see a four war season from Michael Kopech because that would pair greatly with Lucas <laughs> Giolito. And that would be, yeah, that would be like the, and also like just the, Moncada being as good or nearly as good as Chris Sale plus Kopech being as good as Jose Quintana in one trade, that would be, yeah, that would be a hell of a return. Yeah, Rick Hahn would have done very well on that front. David, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from Paul Riker, and Paul is asking, uh, not sure if you're doing PO Sox, but I'd love to know who you think has the best opportunity to succeed elsewhere from the group of players we've lost or could lose if not tendered. And I think this is hinting at the 40-man crunch and making players available for the Rule 5 draft, Jim. 
yeah, there's some of that. There's also non-tender like Yolmer. Um, Yolmer, you know, seems likely to be non-tender just because of $6 million salary. If that is indeed what the White Sox are projecting for him, that's MLB trade rumors numbers. And sometimes they vary, but, uh, if the White Sox are along the same lines, I can see them not bringing him back. And I could see him going to another team that uses him better, like uses him less. Um, you know, and, and he could provide, uh, some help to a winning team just because he's not, you know, his weaknesses aren't as glaring. Kind of like Avi with the Rays, you know, Avi goes to the Rays, only plays 120 games versus 150. Um, he, he did play a fair amount against right-handed pitching because he proved he could, but if they didn't prove they could hit right-handed pitching, they had a backup plan for him. So, you know, they, they play him as much as he deserves to play when he's either banged up or not a good matchup. They have other options. And so they got a, you know, a good, decent, uh, you know, two, two and a half win season out of him for 120 games. And uh, that's kind of what I think Yolmer's... I don't think Yolmer has the kind of talent to where he can provide that much over less of a sample, but I can see him, you know, filling that Avi slash Connor Gillespie role where he goes to another team that doesn't need him as much, only plays him when the situation, you know, dictates a need for him or an advantage playing him, and he, you know, helps a winning team out and becomes a fan favorite over there. So uh, I can see that, but I don't think it'll hurt the way that like Avi did just because Avi, you know, moved on left in and the White Sox didn't even really try to replace him. Uh, John Jay was a disaster and there's just a, uh, you know, Daniel Polka was terrible and they just had nobody in right field where Avi would have looked like a godsend. I think with Nick Madrill coming up, I don't think Yolmer's absence will be felt. Uh, look at the other ones like Osich being left go. I, I was impressed with the way he, I guess what, you know, how much of a load he took on and uh, you know, how, uh, yeah, he turned in some long relief outings that were pretty impressive and got some wins for it, but I don't think he'll really hurt the Sox that much. Those long reliever guys never really tend to. Um, Carson Fulmer could be interesting if he's out of options and the White Sox don't have room for him. If somebody else picks him up and figures out what the White Sox uh, never were able to, that'll be really annoying. But um, I, I think uh, ultimately... Uh, I'm still have a low grade fear that Wellington Castillo could have a better season than James McCann next year. <laughs> so I think that would be maybe the one that irritates White Sox fans the most. If he goes to another team that needs a catcher and has nobody, ha you know, nobody is playing time and Castillo turns into one of the seasons that he had with the Orioles where he hits 20 homers and, you know, looks okay. Whereas McCann regresses and uh, the White Sox don't have a backup plan for that. Oh man. <laughs> Let's, I'm not going to think about that anymore. Let's move on to the next P.O. Sox question uh, from Hunter Rojas. And Hunter's asking, Rick Hahn and company have been pouring water over offseason expectations. That being said, I feel that Kenny Williams will get Jerry Reinsdorf to sell prospects, spend money, and contend. Do you think there is internal conflict in the front office on over how to build a team for the 2020 season? Uh, I don't think so. I think at this point, uh, Kenny Williams and Rick Hahn have been working together for 17, 18 years now. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they're still working together, still in the same roles. Um, I, I think there's always been a tendency to treat Kenny as a boogeyman. And, you know, whenever, especially with the first rebuild, uh, the dumb moves get assigned, the dumb aggressive moves get assigned to Kenny, the smart moves get assigned to Rick and, uh, when it comes to, uh, you know, why it failed, it's because Kenny had too much of a say and now it's Rick's turn. And now, you know, when you see the, you know, the lesser returns in the free agent markets and, and still struggling and, uh, you know, the, the rebuild lagging a bit behind, especially when it comes to farm depth, uh, you know, it's still, you know, yeah, I guess 
people still want to reach for blaming Kenny somehow. And I just don't see there's much of a purpose to it. I think ultimately it's a three person unit, Han, Kenny, Jerry. Yeah. And however you want to blame for it, it's just the other two guys get dragged along. And right now I just, I mainly say Han because he's the point person. He's the one explaining things. Uh, and he's the one, I guess, who doesn't get blamed. And I guess they're all equally accountable and don't really see a purpose in trying to differentiate or separate one guy or isolate the one guy. They're, they're all a unit. Uh, none of them have uh, taken the opportunity to move elsewhere. They're probably not going to move elsewhere because of Jerry Reinsdorf's loyalty. So I, I don't see much of a purpose in trying to differentiate or isolate or somehow divvy up responsibility and, and blame and, and credit for moves when it's basically just one cohesive engine. Yeah, cohesive doesn't mean it actually works, but it's all in one piece. That is true. I don't think there's conflict at all. I just think that they're going to ha- they're gonna have to work together, obviously, and they're putting in everyone. I mean, this is the reason why Nick Hostetler is a, an assistant or one of the reasons why he's an assistant to Rick Hahn to help him on the scouting front and make sure they're doing their due diligence in their, in their targets because that was a question that was asked to Rick Hahn. I think he made a joke about how do you react when you miss on your targets, lack of sleep, drinking. Uh, and I, I do think that they recognize that this is an area of weakness. So hopefully they are on the same page. But I don't think I've heard anything or read anything from the GM meetings to suggest that they're not on the same page right now. Right, Jim? Or did I miss something? No, I mean, they both had comments like, you know, uh, I think Kenny Williams said, I'm not sure if I got the exact quote, but he said, like, it'll be business as usual, more than usual. And I think he meant like business as usual is like the way the uh, White Sox used to operate business as usual, trying to be aggressive while not blowing... (laughs) anybody away with the kind of money they offer but you know trying to win now uh han was you know going about a different way by saying that he didn't want to talk about really anything until they could produce players but they weren't i would say conflicting sentiments or most just to like i would say that's kenny ways uh, kenny's way of uh voicing it and and rick's way of appro- uh, voicing it kenny is the one who brings more competition i suppose to his quotes whereas han just tries to limit his words to something that can't be debated, but is ultimately <laughs> meaningless. So they both had their ways of doing it, but I, I didn't see anything that struck me as like one guy is over going to overrule the other. I think they, they work in concert. Well, Hunter, thank you so much for your question. And thank you to everyone that submitted questions this week on PO socks. Again, if you have a question or topic that you would like us to tackle in a future episode of the socks machine podcast, Again, follow us on Twitter. We're at Socks Machine. We do have a Facebook page at facebook.com slash Socks Machine. And uh, we also have Patreon, which you can go help support the show and you get additional content from us at patreon.com slash Socks Machine. And again, we're going to take another break here with the podcast. We're going to come back. Don't worry. We'll come back in December to recap everything that happens to the winter meetings. Uh, if something happens between now and then, as far as a big signing or big trade, we'll have the emergency podcast. But for your PO Sox questions, 
definitely submit those because Jim will continue to do the P.O. Socks columns for our Patreon supporters. So if you enjoy P.O. Socks, and he's done a couple of these already as far as the P.O. Socks mailbags, when you sign up at patreon.com slash machine to help support SocksMachine.com, you'll also get an opportunity to read those columns as well and submit questions into the P.O. Socks mailbag. And those have been very enjoyable to read, Jim. So thank you for continuing that. Yeah, thanks for people supporting and asking. Like, if I didn't have any uh, questions... Uh, they would not uh, be a mailbag, so takes two to tango. Yes. So, again, we're going to go on a brief hiatus, unless there is some major happenings that go on. But I will be in San Diego. Hopefully, we'll be able to get additional recordings and record some interviews with some big baseball people while I'm out there in San Diego. Hopefully there is big news as well uh, that happens that you'll be able to read on SoxMachine.com. And of course, again, follow us on Twitter at SoxMachine for the latest regarding the Chicago White Sox. But that will do it for this episode of the Sox Machine podcast. Thank you so much to James Fegan of The Athletic for joining the show again to help recap all that had happened at the GM meetings. Again, we recommend that you do subscribe to The Athletic to continue to read James's work, but also keep in mind, Ken Rosenthal writes over there now, so if you want all this breaking news and everything that's going on in Major League Baseball, go to theathletic.com to sign up today. If you just discovered the Sox Machine podcast, you can subscribe to the show in a number of ways. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Audioboom.com slash Socks Machine. The Socks Machine Podcast is a production of SocksMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Check out our amazing offers on Xfinity Internet. You'll get fast speed and Wi-Fi coverage you can count on. Plus, get advanced security free with the XFi Gateway, so you can keep the connected devices in your home protected from network threats. Just log in and activate through the Xfinity app. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. For the ones who get going when the going gets tough. And the ones who know we're tougher together. For the pathfinders breaking new ground. Granger offers supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as fast access to experts and 24-7 customer support. Because we know you have people depending on you. So you can always depend on us. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.